Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, the radio chick, Annie Ubellis. Join Annie on Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an open chat room full of her regulars. And yes, you can even call in. Call 917-889-3675. That's 917-889-3675 to be a part of the action on the phone line. Not able to listen live? Not a problem. You can always catch Annie, the radio chick, and Southern Sense Talk Radio podcast in archives at southern-sense.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Southern Sense the right way. When an emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is, run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, simple. You use today to make a plan, to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your stored shelves. So order now and prepare yourself and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290. Or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense. And you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. All right. And you're here listening to Southern Sense. You're live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. You know what I'm going to say next. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most is the radio chick, Annie, along with my colorful, courageous, and oh-so-intellectual co-host, Curtis C.S. <laughs> Bennett. Curtis, how are you today? I'm doing fine. I'm getting ready for... Another cold um, streak that's going to come through probably this weekend. Last weekend was raining like crazy, but I don't know. They try to tell me it's Christmas time, so you know, hockey with the <laughs> Christmas spirit, despite the weather. 
Well, it's sunny, clear skies, and in the 70s over here. I'm just about three hours north of you, so hopefully we'll be setting some of that warm weather down <laughs> to you. Uh, Please anyway, do. We need it in uh, Florida. I'm flashing in front of the camera so people can see. I got my invitation to the governor's inaugural. Uh, governor McMaster's was elected our governor here. Uh, he had taken office after Dickie Haley left to become uh, UN ambassador, so he was he fell into that slot because he was lieutenant governor. He is now duly elected our governor, and I got my invite. I got my invite. <laughs> so I don't know if I'm going to be able I'm to still go, waiting on we'll mine. see what happens. <laughs> I'm still waiting on mine. <laughs> uh, anyway, we got ourselves a great show. Two fantastic guests returning, Dr. Paul Nathanson. Uh, he's going to be talking to us about Ms. Andrew, and there's a couple of new scandals that just broke out dealing with transgenderism. That uh, It's really starting to hit the fan. And also, Uranium One is hitting the highlight. It's finally coming out. I'm going to be talking to C.S. Walker. He was on as a guest just last week, but he had mentioned Uranium One, and when this hit the fan just the other day, I quickly grabbed him and said, we got to We've got to be once again in the forefront. We helped to break uh, Fast and Furious and several other scandals before mainstream media got a hold of them. So we're now going to be talking about Uranium One. And if something just happened just yesterday in Uranium One. And I'm telling you, it's going to hit the fan big time. Anyway, that said, I want to welcome those that are listening up in our chat room, in our studios, up on Facebook and YouTube. Uh, Anyone that listens to the show knows we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today is no different. Today's dedication is going to go out to uh, Sergeant Daniel Scott Baker of Dixon County Sheriff's Office in Tennessee. His end of watch was May 30th of this year. And Sergeant Daniel Scott Baker not only was a deputy sheriff, a U.S. Marine, a husband, and a father. And this is from the Daily Mail by Stephanie Haney, and it's only parts of it. Uh, additional parts will be coming from uh, uh, com, And it reads, The widow of a Tennessee sheriff's deputy watched in tears as the man accused of killing her husband was arraigned on tur- charges of murdering him, burning his body, and impersonating him. The deputy's friends and family, including his wife, Lisa, sat in the first row and became emotional at times. Stephen Joshua Wiggins now faces federal as well as state charges that could be punishable by death in connection with the murder of Dixon County Sheriff Sergeant Daniel Baker, authorities said, at the Dixon County Courthouse in Charlotte, Tennessee. Baker was responding to a call about a suspicious car last week when he discovered it was stolen and the situation quickly escalated, Dixon County Sheriff Jeff Bledsoe said. Authorities believe his accomplice, Erica Castro-Miles, was in the car when Wiggins shot Baker and that Wiggins dragged the deputy's body into the police cruiser and drove it to a rural area where he set it on fire. Wiggins then became the object of a massive 48-hour manhunt at the Department of Justice. We backed the men and women in blues, Jeff Sessions said in a joint announcement with U.S. Attorney Donald Cochran. Violence against law enforcement officers, federal, state, local, or tribal, will not be tolerated. 
According to federal court documents, Wiggins said the suspicious vehicle was parked in the road pointed the wrong way for about four hours, had a flat tire, and wasn't drivable when Baker arrived at the scene. Wiggins was behind the wheel, and Castro Miles was in the front passenger seat. Wiggins gave Baker a fake Social Security number when asked for ID, court documents show. Baker determined the car had been stolen and ordered the two out of the car, but Wiggins claimed his door wouldn't open from the passenger side, prosecutors said. Baker's body camera recorded some of what happened next. When he walked around the rear of the car to the passenger side, Wiggins fired a pistol about five times at Baker, hitting him at least once. Baker tried to take cover, but collapsed, prosecutors said. Wiggins then fired five more times, the last three at short range, prosecutors said. Wiggins went into detail with state investigators about the shooting. After he had fired the first set of shots, he went to where Baker was lying, thought he was dead, but didn't want the man, Baker, to suffer. So he shot Baker in the head multiple times. Like a dog, you know, man, it's suffering. You make sure it's dead, Wiggins said, according to court documents. Wiggins also answered a radio dispatch and a call from another deputy on Baker's cell phone, pretending to be the fallen sergeant, the state indictment says. He then dragged the deputy's body into the rear seat of the patrol car and drove it three or four miles to a field, court filings say. He told investigators he was thinking about the TV show CSI and worried about forensic evidence and fingerprints. So he found some paperwork and started fires in the front and back seats and fled. Wiggins stated he was worried about potential evidence because he just killed a cop, according to the summary of his interview with investigators. The evidence, however, wasn't destroyed. Baker was found with two gunshot wounds to his torso, one to his hand, and three to the left side of his head. A preliminary autopsy showed the right side of his uniform was charred and his skin was blackened. At the time, Baker first came in contact with Wiggins. He was already at large after being charged the day before for assaulting Castro Miles and stealing that same car from her, according to a report from the Kingston Springs Police Department. Wiggins had multiple convictions for assault, violation of probation, and other offenses on his record. And this is from WATE.com. Hundreds of people attended the funeral service for 32-year-old Dixon County Sergeant, who was killed in the line of duty. Sergeant Daniel Baker's wife was escorted into the First Baptist Church by Dixon Deputy Kenny Monzen. Mourners and law enforcement from across the nation have paid their respects to the fallen sergeant, who is a father, a husband, and a U.S. Marine. I like the services that are a life celebration. They're a lot more uplifting, but I just can't get used to them when I'm hurting so bad at this time, said Sheriff Bledsoe. During the service, Sheriff Bledsoe retired badge 95 and patrol car number 500, both of which belonged to Sergeant Bacon. Baker. He said neither number will be issued again in Dixon County. Sergeant Baker's final call went out at the cemetery. In part, it said, Sergeant Baker gave himself 
while serving Dixon County with courage and valor. The men and women of Dixon County Sheriff's Office are forever grateful and proud to have served with Sergeant Baker. We will never forget his ultimate sacrifice. Sergeant Daniel Baker, may you rest in peace knowing your strength lives on in your wife. Your legacy will carry on to your daughter and you will forever be in our hearts. Sergeant Daniel Scott Baker, badge 95 for the remainder. Thank you for your service. Rest easy. We will take it from here. Today's show is dedicated to Sergeant Baker. It's also dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve out there as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency service. We also dedicate it to all the brave men and women that serve in our military for the birth of this nation through today and into its future. And we dedicate it with this song, Amazing Grace. May God bless each and every one. Here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Speaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. And you're here listening to us. I'm the hostess with the mostest, the radio chick, Annie, along with my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Uh, and we have great guests coming in on the line. If I can get my fingers to 
walk work but that or my teeth work <laughs> my mouth works <laughs> uh anyway we've got with us uh, dr paul nathanson returning he's the author of multiple books uh spreading misandry the teaching of contempt for men in popular culture legalizing misandry from public shame to system uh, i cannot talk today systematic discrimination against men replacing misandry and sanctifying Miss Andrea. He's co author uh, with, I always forget to add her in, Dr. Catherine Young. Good afternoon, Dr. Paul. How are you today? Fine, thank you. You know, it's really hitting the fan right now. With we, I think the Kavanaugh hearings brought it to light, but now it's, it's really getting crazy uh, with the LBGT community and the transgenderism that's spreading around. It has gone off the walls, and you, know, you never know where the next story is going to pop. And I caught this um, article that was recently in, uh, what was it, CBN uh, News. And um, there is a school in the U.K. where one teacher said 17 of her students, these are young kids, you know, in elementary school, are transgendering. They're, they're transferring. Uh and they're they're not even in puberty yet, and seventeen of just her students alone that's a high number. There's something unusual going on here. Well, yes, there is one thing that's going on is that I, I think that all seventeen of those children are autistic so uh which leads one to think that. They are they're very vulnerable, more vulnerable than most children. Um, there is some kind of influence going on uh, in which they find it um, maybe improves their status in school if they become trans instead of autistic, or perhaps some of them are gay, because that's one thing that very often happens with people who are trans they they're really gay uh, they discover that at some point in the future um yes I, I mean you know let me first say that people who are uncomfortable with the gender norms of their time and place which vary a great deal from time uh, across time and space uh there have always been people like that uh, the medical term is that they have gender dysphoria. Um, I myself um, certainly grew up not comfortable with the notions of masculinity that were prevalent. But that's another that's another thing to have surgery or hormone treatment um, to correct that problem. Um, especially because these things um, are not easily reversible, so that if you have um, a sex change or a gender change, to be more exact, at the you know age of uh, seven or eight, um, that could easily affect your ability to function um, reproductively. Um, you could also change your mind, and some people do. So I, I just, you know, the idea that children are being 
um, let's say, encouraged to go through with this really amounts to experimenting on children who cannot give their informed consent. So I think that's one... Yeah, exactly, because uh, Walt Heyer happens to be a friend of the show. When he first came out with his first book, and we had him on, we've had him on before. Oh, what a wonderful uh, and courageous man. But this article uh, it, that's in CBN uh, magazine is by Steve Warren, and this happened in the United Kingdom. And this one teacher had 20 years' worth of educational experience. So it's not someone that's just panicking. She just saw a, a trend that was going on in her classroom. But it turns out in this one school – uh, this is occurring to 150 autistic teenagers, and they were given puberty blockers to stop their bodies from maturing without the parents' permission. That's that's crazy. I mean, God forbid yes, some some school board member decides my child is a behavioral problem, has a mental illness, or might be partially autistic or something, and without my permission to give them these hormone blocking medications and basically change the course of my child's life without my permission or authorization? That's just nuts. Yes, it's very disturbing. Um, another case, and I'm not sure where this was. It could have been in England as well. Um, it involved uh, two parents and a divorced parents. The child who was, I don't know, five or six years old lived with the mother, and the mother decided that she wanted him to become a girl and dressed him in uh, girl's clothing, sent him to school as a girl. Um, But when the boy was with his father, he wanted very much to be a boy. (laughs) And um, so you have to wonder how much influence and what kind of influence this mother was using on her own son presumably in order to convince the judge that the child was better off with her because it really wanted to be a girl uh, than with the father who um, treated the child as a boy. Now, you know, this is getting pretty, uh, I don't know what the word is, uh, very sleazy to say the least. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, that's I, I, not that's to say that, that all... Apart. I was going to say, I, I have that article here right in front of me, because that's, that's a little boy in Texas. That's here in the United States. It's not in the United Kingdom or anywhere else. That's here in the United States, this six-year-old boy, James. Yeah. Yes, it's very, it really is very disturbing. Now, this is this is where not only Miss um, Andrew comes into play, but it's also basic child abuse on the part of the I feel on the mother. Yeah, on this this one, I side with the father 100 percent because James is you know, it's a set of twins. His brother's name is Jude. Nothing's being done to Jude. This is being done to James, his twin. And when he's with mommy, mommy dresses him as a girl, calls him Luna. And if the father doesn't do that, she is charging the father with child abuse, taking away his parental rights of both children unless he acknowledges the son as a daughter. Now, dad took his hands off approach and said, well, wait a minute, maybe this is a problem, maybe it isn't. So he bought clothes for his son, both male and female. And he told his son, dress in whatever makes you feel comfortable. I'm not going to tell you how to dress. You tell me how you want me to address you. 
and he wants his father to call him James. He dresses in boys' clothes. He behaves like a boy. He dresses up in a superhero as Captain America. Not as, as Wonder Woman, but as Captain America. Only when he's around the mother does he behave as Luna. And when she took him to a gender psychiatrist, the gender psychiatrist herself said, when the mother's with him, he behaves like Luna. As soon as she's out of the room, he behaves 100% like boy. So there's no consistency in this. And one of the things for gender dysphoria, it has to be consistent. It has to be something that happens all of the time, not when daddy's here or mommy's here. So even here, it's not proven with gender dysphoria. In this case, the mother's using the child as a weapon, isn't she? That's right. This is what it's all about, isn't it? Yes. Well, it, it um, this topic uh, relates to the topic of misandry or feminism in general. It's not. It's a. It's a byway of my research, but it is related because um, the whole notion of feminist has been that gender is something that is a social construct. It has nothing whatsoever to do with the chromosomes in your body, which can be ignored at will. And gender is not only a social construct, but it's a social construct largely of men who whose motivation is to oppress women. So if gender is just a social construct that can be changed at will, then it follows that um, anybody who wants to um, be the opposite sex, by which they usually refer to men who want to become women, that's just fine. It doesn't always work the other way around. Some feminists are very troubled by the idea of um, women becoming men, men being the enemy. Um, other feminists are troubled even by men becoming women because they say, well, do we really want people who are really men just dressed up as women going into women's washrooms? and potentially molesting women. And how can a person who grows up as a man and um, doesn't experience the oppression of women, how can that man suddenly claim to be a woman uh, and therefore uh, sympathetic to women? The whole, you see, this is, just goes around in circles. Uh, this is, there, there is no consensus even within the ideological camps. Um, and as for the physicians, uh, and, um, you know, the fact is that you, your chromosomes tell you whether you are male or female. Not whether you're masculine or feminine, but whether you're male or female. That's Doctor. written into your genetic code. Now, Doctor. Yes. I was just going to say, isn't the purpose of being a male or female is to to help, you know, delineate between, you know, whether you, you know, you have um, a certain sexual, you know, instrument or not. And that helps also 
and identifying, you know, people, you know, when they need to be identified, like male or female. I hear now, or I read somewhere, where there's over a hundred different descriptions of um, one's sexuality. Who's going to remember all those different, you know, variations of whether you're a female or male or bisexual or transsexual or transgender or you go both ways or whatever? It's, it's yes, it's um, it's. Uh, the definition of gender, let alone sex, which are two different things, these definitions are fragmenting into a million pieces. Um, and it is hard to see how anybody can keep straight, you should pardon the expression, uh, <laughs> what, what kind of sexuality you prefer and you know, but this raises larger questions for me. It's not only a problem of what happened to these children. That is a that's a real problem, a serious problem. But there are additional problems in in the sense of what does this say about society as a whole? This is happening in a very very hedonistic society in which um, whatever feels good is good. Uh, and I'm not crazy about this uh, uh, this um, encouragement of a hedonistic worldview. Um, I'm not happy about the idea that people can ignore scientific evidence uh, and just say, "Well, your chromosomes don't matter. All that matters is what you want." what's in your personal, what gives you pleasure or takes away pain. You know, I think that these are all questions that say something about our society, and it's not good. It's anti-intellectual. Uh, it's experimenting with people who cannot give informed consent. Uh, it, uh, it infiltrates uh, universities and other institutions in the sense that it's considered a punishable offense to argue or challenge um, any of these ideas, you're called transphobic. And in some cases, you can be fired. You can, you can lose your job, your reputation, simply because you don't accept what is becoming a doctrine. So these are all things that are, you know, uh, um, implicit in this problem quite apart from the fact that we have children at risk. Uh, that's, that's the important thing to, to point out here. You have a child that's unable to make an informed decision. That six-year-old. All that little six-year-old wants is to be loved by his family, by his, both of his parents, and by his brother. He wants to be treated just like everyone else, but he wants to be loved. So if mama is going to turn around and treat him better because he behaves like Luna, he's going to cater to her whim. So again, this child is being used as a pawn. And what is this going to do to him later on down the road? Here his one twin is growing up as a normal boy, and he's not allowed to behave in a normal fashion. He's being treated differently. What is this going to also do to his twin brother? How is his twin brother looking at this? Well, maybe mommy's going to love him more because he's pretending to be a girl, so maybe I'll pretend to be a girl so I get mommy's love too. 
It, it, what, right. is she, yeah. what she is doing is tantamount to child abuse, plain and simple. It is. Oh, it is. It is. You know, supposed to be, um, and the poor father is is at the other end where he's having the law beaten over his head. Law is supposed to be gender neutral, but what they have done is they've used gender now to attack you through the law. That's another disturbing uh, aspect of it, is it not, Doctor? Um, um, how did you phrase that? Using gender as a weapon through the law. Yes. Yes, well, it is. I mean, um, gender has been weaponized, as they say. Um, and all of this is uh, happening in the midst of pervasive confusion over what gender means and what sex means. You know, if you say, as trans people do say, that they are that there is a some kind of entity, whether they call it a soul or a a mind or a spirit that is inhabiting the wrong body, <clears throat> then they're really um, they're they're denying uh, scientific evidence. There's no scientific yeah, evidence that- for any entity of that kind. Now, if I remember, and I'm going back a couple of years in the research I've done dealing with this issue, and if I remember correctly, I think it was somewhere around late 60s, early 70s, the Mayo Clinic stopped doing the transgender surgeries because they found it was detrimental to the mental health of the individual. And in fact, yeah. in recent years, the number of people detransitioning has been ever increasing based upon not just you know, people finally going and getting the proper psychiatric help, but the number of suicide rate transgenders, which is astronomically higher than the normal society. Yes, I think, are you referring to the controversy over John Money? Because he's the uh, yes. guy who, he um, did some kind of operation on a newborn infant um, who had ambiguous genitalia and the child was raised as a girl, even though there was evidence that it was genetically a boy. And that was praised at the time as being, look how wonderful this is. Look what you can do. You can with proper care and love and all these things, you can produce a fine woman. But in fact, that person uh, later, uh, complained bitterly about that. Uh, so, uh, which was one of the things that caused money to lose his influence. Um, but other people took up the cause, and it's now back to where it was. Yeah, you know, because uh, and that, a pediatrician, and, and also, Michelle. I should, I should just add here, there's another movement going on that plays into this, and that is called transhumanism. And the goal of the transhumanists is to use medical technology, uh, futuristic technology, to create a new human species or a new species altogether. Um, 
So that's, you know, all of these things going on in the background. At the same time as um, public um, discomfort with the notion of genetic engineering and uh, technological engineering and uh, uh, environmental pollution. So on the one hand, people are complaining about interfering with nature. On the other hand, people are, are using um, very dubious means precisely to interfere with nature. Wasn't it, and I, I probably will get this right or wrong, I don't remember if it was North Korea or China, two doctors bragged about genetically engineering twin baby girls. And once that got word out, the scientific community and everyone else got into a huge uproar because that's now man trying to act as God. And this is what the problem is. You forget that, hey, there is a, a God. Uh, you may be agnostic or whatever, but once man tries to act the part of God, that's when everything goes all wrong. And this is what's going on here. That people are saying there are no more moral values. We're going to do whatever we want, as you say, hedonistically. Whatever feels good has got to be okay, despite it may break every moral value, every ethical value that we have as human race. It, it, it's okay. It just feels good. Isn't it? This is where, where we're heading, isn't it? Yes, it is. I would like to ask. Well, I had a question. Go ahead, Kurt. Yeah. Go ahead, Curtis. I, I would like to know where all of this came from. I mean, I say less than 10 years ago, this whole subject of um, LGBT and all that, I mean, they made that whole group. Uh, made up about maybe one point something percent of the population, but it became such a, a hot political, um, you know, bomb. So, I mean, is this is there something else driving this? And if so, what's the purpose? What's the um, the you know the the end results of it that these folks are seeking? Well, I think there probably are are several groups or movements that are adopting this. I mean, one group is a particular school of feminism which wants to say over and over again that gender is something that can be changed easily um, and that we don't have to pay attention to anything that is genetically driven basically because women want to deny the fact that they are biologically programmed to be able to produce children and care for children. They don't want that. So they want to deny the importance of anything that emphasizes um, the degree to which nature determines their existence. Um, so that's one very powerful group. And then I mentioned a few others. <clears throat> um, you know, I think we basically covered the various segments of society that are trying to benefit in this way. Um, but really, 
Uh, the other another factor is in terms of the origin of this is a movement that is basically a, an academic movement called postmodernism, which uh, denies the existence of truth. There's no such thing as truth, only our truth and your truth. So in an atmosphere of that kind, when that trickles down, well, once again, uh, you know, you can't point to uh, the genetic code as truth because they say, well, whose truth? Your truth? My truth? Uh, so they have undermined the whole notion of truth, even in scholarship. And these are all things that are taking place at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's relativism, basically, is what it is. It's whatever rel- is relative to me. Uh, instead of taking into consideration that you are part of a human race, that you are just one more cog in the whole machine that we call the world here. No, you have to place yourself above everyone else, and only you know what your truth is. No one else can truly understand you or be on par with you because you and yourself become the whole universe. And that is one of the most selfish things that a human being can do to another human being, I think. And I, I think this is what the whole movement comes down to. It is a completely selfish movement. Instead of acknowledging the fact that someone else may exist and may not feel the same way you do. Instead of doing unto others as you would have done unto you, no. You treat yourself as a superior to everyone else. So that whatever the truth is, as you see it, has to be the real truth. And there's no backing You know, down. during, during and, the Kavanaugh hearing, um, at one point, Kavanaugh and his family were accosted in an elevator by somebody who was screaming um, that her truth would prevail, her truth. She said, my truth. Now, when you talk about truth and you, and you use words like my in front of it, that really means there's no such thing as objective truth, only my truth and your truth. Now, exactly. another, movement, as, as more... another thing that's going on that is even more uh, directly related to this topic is the whole um, identity politics. Uh, the premise of identity politics is that the individual is of no importance at all. all the only thing that's important is your membership in some kind of group defined by, well, it could be race, it could be sex, it could be uh, sexual orientation, or it could be... But your importance is as a representative of a class or group. And, um, and therefore, you can do almost anything you want in the name of that class and call it uh, self-defense or... Um, you know, against oppression because some classes are more important than others. I mean, uh, if you're if you're a black woman who happens to be a lesbian, according to this scheme, uh, it's called intersectionality, but that's not important. According to this scheme, then you have more moral status and therefore a stronger right to uh, speak out in public and get change than somebody who happens to be uh, male and white 
uh, who's somebody, therefore, who has no right to speak out at all. Um, so identity politics is a game that's being played. Uh, it's the dominant game nowadays. Uh, you know, politics used to be about economic class. There were some people who, who obviously did not have the, the economic resources to live well. But they could have been people of any race, any sex, any sexual orientation. It was simply a matter of providing people with resources. But now that's quite different. Now it's all about your identity. And your identity is measured in connection with how representative it is. That's why we have affirmative action. Because if you can say that some group is not represented in a school or a, a, a factory or a corporation exactly in proportion to the general population, then there, it must be because of discrimination and oppression. It can't be because people simply have different interests or priorities as individuals. Yeah, you, you, you bring up an important point. Uh, well, our friend Warp in the chat room says it's the Fabian Society stuff. This has been tried before throughout history, and it's never really worked. The pendulum swung so far to the left that it's had to come. It was forced to come back down to the right. And this is where instead of having a meritocracy, as you said, it becomes affirmative action. Because if you can't get onto that job or succeed in society because you feel you need to be part of a protected class, what are you saying about yourself? You're saying, oh, you're either too dumb, too stupid, too inferior to succeed on your own merit. So therefore, we have to be gentle to you and give you an affirmative action to help you reach that status that we think that we're going to have to help you, you know, hand you up to. That, that says something really poorly about our society and about how we treat individuals. If we have to if they have to behave as if they're inferior to the, everyone else. Well, you know, the, the great achievement of America uh, as a part of the founding mentality was that every citizen is an individual and that they should have equal opportunity, but not necessarily equal results. The equal results would, would depend on things like personal motivation, personal interest, but equal opportunity is the one thing that a government can try hard to, um, to assure that every citizen will have an equal opportunity. Well, we're, we've left behind equal opportunity. We're no longer talking about that. It's about equal result. Yeah, Now, exactly. You cannot achieve equal result in a free society. You can use government intervention to achieve something like that, but that's, you know, the communists tried that. Look where it got them. Precisely. Precisely. Exactly. Matter of fact, I'm going to bring this one point up because I pulled this aside, and I, I thought this was just at first too funny uh, at first because now the feminists have gone after a Christmas song. You know, remember the, the old song that came out in the late 30s, early 40s, Baby, It's Cold Outside? Um, 
Ella Fitzgerald made it really famous in her rendition of it. It's a beautiful duet. And it, it, it's a funny, cute duet. You know, it's a seduction duet. And we've seen what, it what's played it called? over and over. Matter of fact, Baby, It's Cold Outside. Remember, it goes, Baby, oh. It's Cold Outside. I really must go. And it goes forth. As a matter of fact, there's one famous movie in it uh, with Red Skelton. And I forget who the actress was that sang it. She sang the male side of the duet, and he sang the female side. It was really funny. But the feminists have gone after this, saying it's sexist, it's uh, mis- mis- I can't even say that. misogynist. Uh, they really tore the song out, and they're trying to get the song banned. But the very same people that are trying to ban the song are not going after rap lyrics that degrade women, talk about rape of women. The feminists don't go after the rap artists. Instead, they go after a classic Christmas song. Is this Miss Andre at its best? Well, you've certainly described it well. I mean, uh, it's the kind of thing that we're going to see more and more of. Of course, Christmas songs per se are under attack. I mean, you know, there are many people who think that the very idea of Christmas or anything to do with Christianity is something that has to be wiped out entirely. This is what it's all about. You you have to weld that power, that power which is dominion. They want to dominate. They do not want to participate equally in a meritocracy. And, you know, here's another factor. Um, you know, democracy is based on the principle that there will always be majorities and minorities. Now, if you cannot accept that in some ways you're going to be a minority, if there's something inherently undignified about being a minority, something that is oppressive, then how can you have a democracy? In a democracy, um, a liberal democracy, such as the one that we have, you have to guard against what's known as the tyranny of the majority, but you also have to guard against something that could be called the tyranny of the minority. Now, trans people are a very, very, very tiny segment of the population. And although I would certainly argue for treating everybody, including them, with respect and courtesy, That doesn't mean that they should, uh, in a sense, dictate to the rest of society how they should talk and act. And that's what they're trying to do. This is so true. Yeah, this is exactly true, because if you happen to be a New York State employee, New York City employee, and you misidentify the pronoun of an individual before you, you could be not only fired, lose your pension, you could be jailed and fined. Now, I'm sorry, if I've, I never met you before and I go to greet you and I see standing before me what appears to be a male, I'm going to say, how are you doing, Mr. Nathanson? I'm going to shake your hand and greet you as I see you. Uh, my eyes tell me one thing. Uh, if you were to tell me, well, I'm sorry, my name is actually Lulu, so please address me like Lulu in the future, 
all right, I'll respect what that is. But do not find me and jail me because I may misidentify you. It, it, that's the well, craziest thing I have ever heard in my life. You know, the most famous uh, case of um, objecting to that rule um, is uh, Jordan Peterson, who <clears throat> has become one of the most, uh, one of the best known public intellectuals in the world. And um, he began by refusing a rule at the University of Toronto. Um, the rule was that he had to address people by their chosen pronouns, and he refused. He just said, look, this is a free country. You're not going to tell me how to address people or how to speak. Now, he um, has not been fired, mainly, though, because he got so much publicity and so much popular support that um, the the university basically couldn't quite fire him. Um, But in theory, he could be fired. Simply because a small segment of society has made up a rule that the majority of society must follow. Uh, That, I think, is called socialism and communism? Well... I, I'm not sure it's like that in some ways, not in all ways. But, you know, let me just add here that I'm not really speaking entirely as a disinterested academic. Um, I am gay. I know what it means to be a minority. And I've had to think about the extent to which I will um, be a good citizen um, and when I have to reject something. So when the whole discussion of gay marriage came up, I didn't support gay marriage, and I still don't. Not because I think there's something wrong with gay people or with gay relationships. I just think that children need both mothers and fathers. Now, that was enough to get me uh, called a traitor by my fellow gay people, not all of them, but some of them. I lost friends. Uh, I um, have to keep defending myself. But as far as I was concerned, it was the need of children that took priority over my own personal self-interest. Maybe I would have liked to marry a gay man. Um, But I didn't think that took precedence over the needs of children. So... At some point, every group has to decide if its own self-interest trumps everything else or if there are some things that transcend self-importance and are for the good of society as a whole. That's part of good citizenship. That's part of democracy. It is, and you you come to an excellent point because this is from familyscholars.org. And it is 26 points on why marriage matters. And here are some of them. Cohabitation is not the same as marriage. It's less committed, less faithful, and more likely to break up. Uh, Growing up inside an intact marriage increases the likelihood children themselves, uh, outside of an intact marriage, will themselves divorce or become unwed parents. And we know unwed parents end up in a more of a poverty situation. And that definitely affects directly the children. 
Marriage typically fosters better romantic and parental relationships, causing a more stable childhood, a more well physically and psychologically developed child. Marriage also reduces men's testosterone levels, so they're less aggressive. Uh, Girls appear to have puberty later in their childhood. Early onset of puberty, more unwed mothers out there. Uh, Divorce and unmarried childbearing increases poverty for both the child and mothers. Um, Married couples seem to build more wealth on average than singles or cohabiting couples. Marriage reduces poverty and material hardship, for example, missing a meal or failing to pay rent. Um, Married men earn more money. Parental divorce or failure to marry appears to increase child's risk of dropping out of high school. Divorce reduces, uh, reduces likelihood that children will graduate from college and achieve high-status jobs. These alone are a good calling for marriage. And I had a debate with a neighbor of mine. She happens to be a lesbian. And we were discussing the situation where the Supreme Court had made the ruling on marriage. And I said, Supreme Court violated the First Amendment when it defined a religious right. The second they define a religious right, they define religion. There are other ways. If you want to cohabitate in a domestic partnership, there's something called a civil union. You have to go to your local government to ask for what they call a marriage license, which is actually a license of a civil union. Then you're recognized as a domestic partner in all things that include domestic partnership. Once you go into a church or synagogue, a temple, and you have the religious right done, you then go from a domestic union legally recognized by the government to one recognized by a religious institution. That one word, if we fought over that one word, we wouldn't have this conversation today. Yes, and uh, as you know, um, gay people at large, not everyone, but many, most, found that that was not a good enough solution. They didn't want civil union. They, it, they wanted marriage. Marriage, they said, had more prestige. And why should they be denied the status of marriage? I don't agree well, with Dr. that. Nathan's the, yeah. Well, actually, you know, in order to break up civil union, you've got to go through divorce, all the rights and liberties, just that one step forward going into a religious right. But then again... Once the Supreme Court defined what a religion is by defining the word marriage, they once again were able to co-opt religion. So now they can go into, say, a Catholic church or into a mosque and say, you must perform this same-sex rite. You must perform this marriage, even though it violates our religious beliefs. Yet you can go to a Unitarian church who would be happy to perform that and accept whatever fees you're willing to pay them. No, but they want to control everyone else. And in order to do that, they must control our religion too. That's right. Compromise is not good enough. (laughs) No, it's not. Dr. Nathanson, I want to thank you for joining us. It is always a pleasure to have you. Uh, People can find your books up on uh, Amazon, all about misandry, spreading misandry, uh, legalizing misandry. Uh, Good Lord, how many? you got about four of them out there, don't you? Four, yeah along with uh, Dr. Catherine Young. Thank you, and God bless for all the hard work you do, sir. Thank you very much. And if I don't speak to you, Merry Christmas.
Okay. Merry Christmas. Dr. Thank Paul. you for saying that. Not holiday, not Christmas <laughs> readings, but Merry Christmas. <laughs> and happy Hanukkah. Take care. Uh, Dr. Paul Napleton, check out his books up on uh, Amazon. We got our next guest in on the line. And I got to admit, Curtis, I'm sorry I confused you because you thought I had uh, the wrong description up. But no, it's not the wrong description. Yes, we do. Welcome back to the show. C.S. Walker, former NSA agent and all all around man about town. Good afternoon, C.S. How are you doing? All right, Annie. How are you? Thank you for having me back on your program. Hey, see uh, it, it is. It's, <laughs> hey, it's funny because when, <laughs> when you were on last week, you said, you know, ask me one time about Uranium One. And I said, oh, man, I had Dr. Ad, uh, not Dr. Admiral Lyons on. We were discussing it, and he wrote an excellent article up in the Federalist. And um, sure, lo and behold, I'm looking through the newspaper, and here's some articles popping up about Uranium One. It has been not talked about in mainstream media. It's been hidden and pushed underneath the carpet in many areas. So not only did I get a hold of Kat to get you back on, but just yesterday another article popped up, and this is starting to break wide open. I think the S is going to hit the fan real soon. I sincerely hope so. But until one certain thing is done, until one scenario is completed and I can actually see the beginnings of that happening, nothing is going to happen because CFIUS, members of the CFIUS panel that were on during the Uranium One process went through, they have to be brought in, they have to be questioned, they have to be interrogated. And if need be, I don't even care if they waterboard them. I got waterboarded just for for giggles just so I can know what it feels like. So let them feel know what it feels like, too. I really don't care. And they need to be questioned under oath um, and also under penalty of perjury if they lie. What exactly happened? Because from certain documents that I pulled up a while ago, and I'm talking almost two years ago, I figured out exactly how it happened, and it was the easiest thing in the world to happen. And I couldn't believe it when I read it. And certain pieces started falling into place. And that's when I understood it wasn't really a complicated process whatsoever for Russia to get all a vast amount of uranium from the United States. Going over what you sent me and what I had from Admiral Lyons, and I'm holding up my clipboard before the camera. I've got <laughs> scribbled notes all up and down the page uh, as I charted this out. So people would understand what CFIUS is. It is the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. And this is an agency that comes under the executive branch. So it's directly responsible to the Department of Treasury that answers to the president. And in the end, the president, him or herself, to be politically correct, uh, has actually the final say on whatever transactions may or may not go through. And I got the pages you sent me, and thank you for that. Um, it has eight voting members on it, and these members come from the Department of Commerce, Defense, Homeland Security, Justice, State, Energy, U.S. Trade Representatives, and the White House Office of Science and Technology. It's got two permanent non-voting members, which is the Director of National Intelligence and Department of Labor. And then there's several other White House staffers that act as observers 
in a case-by-case basis. And this was established by executive order back in 75, expanded in 88, and further expanded underneath the Foreign Investment and National Security Act of 2007. And only the president retains ultimate authority under the statute to prohibit or unwind a transaction where there is credible evidence that a transaction threatens to impair U.S. national security and the threat cannot be adequately mitigated. So technically, uh, Trump was completely correct in undoing the Iran deal. Technically, Trump can undo Uranium One deal. Am I reading this Mm -hmm. right or wrong? You're reading it absolutely correct. See, here's one of the things. Now, the document that I sent you for the sake of the listeners it comes from the Organization for International Investment. Now, this is a company that, as far as I know, and I want to, I want to put a strain on this. I want to stress this heavily. As far as I know, they had no, zero involvement, absolutely nothing to do with the Uranium One process uh, being pushed through. But I did a little digging. And I kept hearing members of, you know, the talking heads from the left saying, oh, well, it's impossible for Hillary Clinton to get Uranium One pushed through. And then I heard, you know, members of the right, the talking heads from the right, and they were saying, well, we don't know exactly what, what had occurred. So I decided to do a little digging. And I went into an area that I'm telling you right now, unless you know what you're doing, do not go there. I went into the dark net. And I went in there, and 10 minutes later, I found these, this three-page document. And this three-page document is the Organization for International Investment trying to explain to potential clients on how the CFIUS process works. They have had experience with the CFIUS process. This organization, which is based in Washington, D.C., which makes complete and total sense, they help other countries buy assets or companies from other countries buy assets from the United States. Now, this being said, they're very, this document does not put Scythius in a very good light whatsoever. I mean, would you agree? I do. I completely agree. You know, if if you don't know what you're looking at and you say, all right, fine, there's a procedure which, you know, we check to make sure companies coming in are not harming the United States. But when you look at what happened with Uranium One and what the reality and truth of it is and look at this document, you say, wait a minute, if you had these procedures in place to prevent something like Uranium One, how did it happen? Well, you have the procedures in place, but within the procedures, there's always a loophole. And that's exactly what was used, the loopholes. It was cut and dry. I mean, in this document, it also says that one of the major considerations that they take is national security. But, and I say it like that because it's kind of funny, but national security is a very hazy definition to it when it comes to Scythius. Um, how can the possibility of Russia getting a whole lot of uranium, 
how is that a hazy line when it comes to national security? I just sat there. When I read that part, I'm like, uh, pardon me? you got to be kidding me. <laughs> well, I, I have the outline on what occurred with Uranium One. And this started actually um, under G.W. Bush as his president. And U.S. Mm-hmm. companies were allowed to purchase uh, Russian uranium from Russia. All right. This started off as our ability to obtain uranium. The idea was to prevent Russia from controlling all of the uranium that we need. As a matter of fact, preventing mm-hmm. them from controlling all of the world uranium. So they set up a company under, probably going to mispronounce this, Rosatom. Rosat, Rosatom? Am I saying that right or wrong? Uh, you're, pro- you're probably saying it better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Rosatom started, this is a Russian company. The Russians started this company, and they had a subsidiary called 10X, which was supposed to be in charge of all the sales and transportation of whatever uranium we purchased from the Russians. But they needed an American subsidiary here in the United States to act as their agent. So Rosatom and 10X started an American subsidiary in Maryland called Tenum, Tenum USA. And the person in charge of th- that subsidiary here in the United States was a Russian called Vadim Merkarin. And he had control over all of Rosatom and Tenem's contracts with the U.S. Now, when that happened, he started to tinker with it. And this is where it gets really into the FBI investigation. He actually forced U.S. companies to play, pay inflated prices. And with these inflated prices... He then laundered money through shell companies and secret bank accounts. Now we're fast-forwarding to 2008, and Bush attempted to do a new agreement, terminating the old one. But it was terminated, the new agreement was immediately terminated when Russia invaded Georgia. So now fast-forward one year to Obama's now in office. And Hillary Rodden Clinton renewed the agreement with Rostatum and Mickerson, and now Mickerin now hires a U.S. lobbyist, where he now creates an extortion scheme. Well, the lobbyist didn't like the extortion. The U.S. lobbyist didn't like the extortion, so he becomes a whistleblower and goes to the FBI. And this is now an FBI investigation under Robert Mueller, Eric Holder, and drumroll, Rod Rosenstein. All right, so now they have this no. huge. Yeah, no, all under President Obama and Hillary Rodden Clinton. So they have a case for racketeering and money laundering against Mickerin, who is running Tenum here in the United States. Lo and behold, a couple of months later now, in March of 2010, Hillary Rodden Clinton goes to Russia. And she makes connections over there, and Bubba, her husband, Bubba Clinton, gets a speaking engagement paid half a million dollars by Renaissance Bank through where some of this money is being laundered. Now, under the Bush administration, Bubba helped Frank, I'm, I'm, I'm half Italian, I can't pronounce this guy's last name, Giestra, Frank Giestra, take control right. of a, he's a Canadian billionaire, take control of uh, uranium, UR Asia Energy, which has you. Uranium mining rights in Kazakhstan and obtains uranium one. And we go on to a South uh, 
African company ends up with a $3.5 million windfall, which controls 20% of Uranium One, U.S. uranium assets. And, and this, this, as I'm following this thing, I'm going, holy moly, how did no one ever realize that slowly and surely where we were trying to prevent Russia controlling the world uranium and U.S. uranium, they start off by just 20% here, 20% there. And as it snowballs down through Cephas, Russia now controls 100% of U.S. uranium. It's just a simple case that, let's say I work for you, and, but I also own my own company. But, again, I work for you, and I am, I am the figurehead of that company for you. And I turn around, and I start buying things, and I start buying other assets. And from the surface, it looks like because I own this company and I'm buying these assets, I'm expanding my company or my corporation, when in all actuality, I'm doing it for you. That's how they simply do it. It's not, I mean, if you break it down to the simplest terms, or you just break it down into common sense, you just sit there and you come to the realization, oh, well, these people are puppets for this bonehead or this genius, depending on how you look at it, at the top. I mean, George Soros does it all the time. George Soros is, he's a master manipulator when it comes to that. Um, so the fact remains is that these companies, you know, that seem independent aren't really independent at all because if you, look, if you dig deeper beyond the surface, that's when you come, come to the realization of who owns who. Whom is being, who is being yeah. owned by whom? That's exactly what <laughs> exactly. it is. It's just a case of ownership. Uh, now, but, Hillary Clinton is stuck. Back in the middle of all this, because she then strikes an additional deal uh, for Putin, where Rostrum gets another 17% of Uranium One. Now, Gustra and UR Asia ends up giving $145 million to the Clinton Foundation. Oh, no, she didn't benefit from this directly. Not only does Bubba get half a million for a speaking engagement, the Clinton Foundation gets nah. $145 million donation. <laughs> now, this is, this nah, is where she didn't benefit I, I'm a bit. surprised. Guess who the staff chairman of CFIS was, who was approving all of this? An Obama appointee, Ayman Navy Mir. He's a connections with the Pakistani intelligence and with ISNA, the Islamic Society mm-hmm. of North America. And he's the one that approves Rostrum, the final purchase of Uranium One. So, no, our enemies weren't there working against us. And Cephas is completely above board, isn't it? Okay. Now, here's – and I'm pretty sure your listeners are thinking that it was because of the head of this CFIUS panel. Ladies and gentlemen, as I mentioned before, there is a loophole to everything. Now, if you take a look at page two of that report that I sent you, uh, basically it's the mandated timeline for CFIUS action, and this is how it works. The initial review is a 30-day it's a 30-day initial review following receipt of notice, okay? Mm-hmm. 30 days, okay. The members of the panel, those departments get 30 days to do an initial review. And then it's up to a 45-day investigation 
Now we dig a little deeper for transactions requiring additional review following the 30 days. So now we're up to 75 days. 30 days for initial review, 45 days for investigation. And then it goes to presidential review with the decision required within 15 days. But, sounds good, but Mm -hmm. there's a loophole. And here is the loophole. If one of the voting members of the panel, if one of those departments says, we did everything, we did the 30-day review and we did the 45-day investigation, it goes straight to the president. It bypasses those 75 days. Straight to POTUS is where it happened. Now, am I, am I saying that everybody on the CFIUS panel were involved in this? No, I am not saying that. But I am saying that the one department that had the most influence on both sides of the situation, both on the CFIUS panel and with the Uranium One Corporation, this one department sat there and said, we did the 75 days. Everybody else had no choice but to say, straight to POTUS. There and was what was that department? And what was that one department? Oh. Gee, was it chaired uh, by someone by was, the name of, uh, with the initials HRC? Uh, yeah, hey, wait, department? it took me a minute there. <laughs> <laughs> My spelling ain't that great sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> but here's the thing. I, I am almost 100%, I am 99.9% positive that Hillary Rodham Clinton, oh, look, HRC, did not sit on the CFIUS panel when this happened. Who do I think sat on this CFIUS panel for her? In my honest opinion, to me, two names pop up, and one of them is Philip Raines. Philip Raines is also the same person that when Mitt Romney was running against Barack Obama, this is the same individual who tried to create a hit piece against Mitt Romney saying that he can't understand a woman's position or women's life because all he has are sons. This is the same guy that tried to do this while working at the State Department, which is, mind you, illegal. You cannot do that. You cannot work. You cannot work for a campaign while you're working at the State Department at the same exact time. It's a conflict of interest. You're supposed to take a sabbatical or time off in order to do that. He did not. So mm-hmm. Philip Raines is one of the names that comes into my mind when it comes to sitting on this panel for Uranium One. This is the same guy that left the State Department to go work for the Clinton campaign, mind you. So all he had to do was sit there and say, hey, we did the 75-day thing. Really? What are your findings? They could have typed anything up, handed out these packets, saying it could have been five pages of saying it's all good. I mean, seriously, five pages, it's all good, okay, people? And CFIUS had no choice but to send it straight to the president because it's within their regulations. But we got bypassed through a little loophole 
in the CFIUS document. You know, and then we asked, whatever happened to the whistleblowers, the investigation surrounding the, the uh, uh, evidence that he turned over? Well, fast forward four years down the road, because this dragged on for four years. In a little tiny article that I caught in the newspaper back in 2014, there was a minor guilty plea, and it was put in the paper just before Labor Day in 2014, just a tiny little minor guilty plea for all this racketeering, money laundering, and extortion, and the whistleblower had a gag order put on him. He was not allowed to discuss anything. And following that determination, immediately after that, under the State Department, Russia, and we have the Russia deal expanding uh, with Iran. Iran made a deal with Russia to purchase uranium. Plus, Russia agreed to build them eight more plants following this little publication of this tiny plea deal. So now it's all swept under the rug, supposedly. But this now ties into Mueller's investigation of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. All right. So now we're going to throw in the Trump campaign. And it turns out that some evidence in the Cohen plea deal with Mueller dealing with Russia exculpatory evidence was withheld from the case which is a huge no-no. The evidence was never presented in the case by the prosecution that should have presented this, which would have completely 100% exonerated Trump. Hmm. Do you think this is going to start blowing open soon? When they went into the former Clinton aide's home and started taking documents, my initial reaction is, okay, this is step one, but why, when are you going to start gathering the rest of the members of the CFIUS panel that sat in during this of Uranium One? Now, as now when I spoke of the loophole, it says it right here on page three of the, of the report that I sent you, and it says that foreign government-controlled transactions are subject to greater scrutiny by CFIUS FINSA created a statutory presumption that notices involving foreign government ownership will proceed to the 45-day investigation phase. Here it comes. Unless senior-level officials, such as the Secretary or Deputy Secretary of the Treasury, and an equivalent official at another designated lead agency within CFIUS, State Department being one of them, now, you have the secretary or deputy secretary of the treasury. How about the secretary of state, which is one of the lead, mm-hmm. uh, one of the designated lead agencies within CFIUS, determine that the proposed transaction will not impair national security. For those acquisitions by a state-owned companies that reach the investigation stage, the law requires an assessment of the foreign country's compliance with U.S and multilateral counterterrorism, non-proliferation, and export control regimes. Here's the loophole yet again. It is very true. It is quite true that Russia has fought against terrorism. They have gone against terrorists. And they're making a, 
well, they're putting on a good show because there's no real hard-hitting evidence of them taking on ISIS in Syria. But it looks like they are. So Russia looks like they're fighting against terrorism. If anybody would have said Russia, like if they would have said Iran, for example, what are you talking about? Iran is supporting Hamas and Hezbollah and so many other terrorist organizations. But it's not Iran. It is Russia. Russia fights the Chechens who are a Chechen terrorist organization. They're fighting against ISIS in Syria. So they put on this good show to make it look like they actually are fighting terrorism when they're more involved with the Chechens. So Russia manages to jump, jump that hurdle. They get by, squeaky clean. Everything else, well, okay, the State Department said that they did the 45-day investigation, so now it's going straight to the president. Everybody else got cut, cut off at the knees before they can, con- they can conduct an investigation. Now, the reason why I'm saying that the former members of the Scythius panel need to be brought in and questioned is who sat there for the State Department, what was said, where the records for that meeting, because they're supposed to keep records for that meeting, and to the best of their recollection, what was the big push and who conducted that big massive push for Uranium One to go through. To this day, nobody from the CFIUS panel has been brought in and questioned. And they're out there. I mean, they haven't accidentally committed suicide yet. Okay, accidental suicide. <laughs> so they're out there, and they need to be brought in and questioned about this. And so, yeah, none of this has happened as of yet. Yes, yeah. See, yeah. Where does um, Barack Hussein Obama fit in all of this? He was the one that had to sign it off. He's the one that had to give the final yes. He's the one that had to give the thumbs up. It was, it all had to come down to him. Even though Hillary pushed for it, or Hillary's office, the State Department, pushed for it, he had to give the final thumbs up and sign off. And he did. I'm sorry to say this, but Barack Obama was Russia's punk for eight years. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then they're saying that Trump is in bed with him. And yet, as it turns out, with this plea deal that uh, Michael Cohen just made and the fact that exculpatory evidence was not presented that should have been, which would have completely 100% cleared Trump of anything, because it shows that this this deal would have never gone through this supposed building. And all Trump was doing was lending his name to the building. But it was through someone who knew someone who knew someone who knew Putin. It was someone that was like three or four persons removed away from him. And because they found out he didn't have the influence, the deal never went through. And so Trump never signed off on anything, never fully agreed to anything. He had nothing to do with this. And that evidence was just never presented. So, of course, now they're still trying to say there's collusion. So Mueller is still going on with his investigation. But I, I sent this article, and I don't know if Cat uh, had forwarded it to you, about uh, this whistleblower's home that was raided by the FBI. 16 no. agents, not one or two or three, 16 agents descended on this poor guy's home. His name was Dennis Cohen Kane, a former, former FBI contractor. Uh, his house is in Union Bridge, Maryland, was a- Rated on November 16th. 
Now, the guy is an official whistleblower. He followed the law. He contacted uh, the, docu- the Department of Justice, and uh, he had turned over the evidence, as it was supposed to be, to the Senate and House committees, presented it to them. He gave them a little thumb drive, turned it over. They met the guy in, the, in a church. He just hands them a double-sealed envelope with a thumb drive in it. And as the FBI agents come to raid his house, he's standing there at the door going, I'm an official whistleblower. I am protected. I turned all these documents over. They still raided his house, held him there for six hours as they tore his place apart looking for these very same documents. They confiscated the copies of the very same documents he turned over. And furthermore, he turns around to them and says, I have an attorney representing me. This is my attorney's name and phone number. They bypassed the attorney and violated his Miranda rights and questioned him without the attorney being notified or present. Does this look like Mueller is trying to hide something? Mueller Mueller can't actually send federal agents because he's a special counsel, but he he can request and he can suggest. And who do you think is the one that sends the FBI to do these things? I mean, it's very simple. Rod Rosenstein. He's the one in charge of doing that. Exactly. So to me, Rosenstein is, I've tried to give the guy the benefit of the doubt. And I, I, to me, if somebody consistently has this look of being scared out of his wits and it's just his natural look, something tells me there's something wrong with this individual. And to me, Rosenstein always has that consistent look of he's scared out of his wits. And it makes me wonder, (laughs) does he have a guilty conscience or is he just a punk? And I'm like, maybe a little bit of A and a little bit of B. Maybe he's both. Never know. But (laughs) Rosenstein, I mean, mean, he's like a 12-year-old can walk up to him and say, give me your milk money. Okay. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> you're the second in charge of the DOJ, and you're giving your milk money away to a 12-year-old? Serious? <laughs> He's got that look about him, and I'm like, he just got punked off by a 12-year-old. But, I mean, yeah, I'm a jerk, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. I like to crack jokes. <laughs> I am a jerk, monumental jerk. But nonetheless, see my heart's in the right place. Yes, yes. See us. How do you see this all playing out? I mean, do people go to jail over this? Okay, I wrote an article on LinkedIn, and I got news for y'all. Bill's not going to prison. Bill Clinton. Hillary's not going to prison. Rosenstein's not going to prison. Mueller's just going to go take a permanent vacation in Jamaica or Aruba. Ain't nobody. Obama's not going to prison. Nobody's going to prison, ladies and gentlemen. Not a single solitary one of them, because if they are threatened with prison, guess what? There are countries out there that will take them in, harbor them, and protect them, and in the same time, they will be spilling their guts as to what they can do to harm the United States. So they basically have the United States in a very bad situation. 
Nobody's going to go to prison. So stop expecting and asking or saying, oh, this person's going to go to prison. They're not going to prison. I'm sorry to tell you that. That's a simple fact. Yeah. Okay? It's just unfortunate. True. Unfortunate, but true. I mean, the evidence is, is building up. And these documents that uh, Dennis Kane turned over uh, shows that uh, there was criminal activity on the part of the Secretary of State, the Clinton Foundation, Rose Adam, and the Russian company that bought Uranium One, uh, that, and also that FBI Director Robert Mueller failed to look into allegations of criminal activity surrounding all of this. Uh, the, the evidence is there, but no one's going to act on it. Absolutely, I agree. I don't think anyone's going to actually act on it. We can put it out there. You may get some resignations, uh, but nothing. I don't see anything happening. Here's the most that's going to happen. Here's the most. Here's an example. And I'm not saying this is actually going to happen, but it's an example. Hillary and Bill Clinton, you guys are bad. You did bad things. You owe us $200 million to the federal government as a fine for your bad things. And they'll say, yeah, okay, no problem. And they'll never pay it. Simple as that. They'll never pay. It'll be on record that they were fined for doing bad things, but they never paid it. See, there is a justice system for two people, for two classes of people. And I am sorry to tell you this, ladies and gentlemen. You, the American people, have elected, you have decided who is going to be the next millionaire to run your life. Because most of these politicians that go into office, they go as either middle class or upper middle class. And mysteriously, when they go into office, all of a sudden, 25, 30 years later, there were 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollars, almost 200 percent more than what they were worth before. You know, sometimes 500 percent more than they what what they were worth before they went into office. So you've decided. Not who's going to represent you, but you've decided who is going to be the next millionaire to tell you how to run your life and what to do with your life. That's one of the things that I like about President Trump. He was a billionaire before he became president. He's like, I don't need the money. I'm going to do this for fun. That said, you've got a new project coming up. You're coming up with your own podcast, aren't you? Yes, I am. Uh, It'll be once a week, and it'll be produced by Zinc Media, Rod Eccles. He's going to be producing it, and it's called The Insider, and I am The Insider, believe it or not. And uh, I will have a team, two magnificent people, Johanna Hoffman, who she is a young woman, Who's sharp? She's bright. She's witty. Uh, she's she's a fantastic young woman. She's and honestly, I believe she's brilliant. And the other one is Don Battaglia, who is and he's as subtle as a as a shovel upside your head, very subtle. <laughs> and and he's he's a straight shooter. He's honest. Great guy. And has a magnificent full head head of hair, and he's he's really funny. But uh, it'll be once a week because to me, honestly, I'm sorry, but doing a podcast every other day or every single day, it, it's the Christmas season. And not only that, not even when it's not Christmas or Hanukkah or any other festive, festive time of the season, people are still busy. 
So during the course of the week, if you have, you know, you want to listen to it, it's one hour long, anytime during the week, just sit down or while you're driving, you can listen to it. It's at your convenience. I don't want to be one of those guys that says, I have a show on every single day for an hour. Listen to me. No. I have a show. Mm. It's a podcast. It's one hour long during the week. Listen to it at your convenience and enjoy. And I hope, I pray to God, that it is enlightening, informative. It, it will be somewhat humorous at times, but I will be bringing in my insights when I worked at the NSA and when I worked with intelligence agencies from other countries and intelligence agencies from here in the United States, you know, when I worked with them. So hopefully this will bring enlightenment and understanding because I try to break it down to the simplest form so that way it's just a case where, oh, okay, he's not talking down to us, he's talking with us. And that's what I like. See ya. That's why I enjoy doing this, and we we do this two times a week. But as of Friday, Curtis and I are taking a short vacation. We'll be back in the new year, a uh, little reformatted. I've got some new equipment I've got to install in my studio here. So I agree. It's possible, Curtis. You know, we'll talk uh, off air whether or not we ourselves cut it down to one day a week. Uh, you can pack in a lot because you have a whole week's worth of material. To, uh, to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love doing this because I sit back and says, if you're having a conversation over the phone, you know, callers are always welcome. They have the number up in the studio to call. And it's just a, a, an easy conversation laid back. So, uh, Curtis, I'm sorry, I cut you off again, but go ahead, baby doll. <laughs> CS, what can you yeah. tell us about this facility in Utah? Officially, I know it's supposed to be a place to store data. What's the unofficial version? <laughs> okay, here's the fact. Lisa. And I'm talking about all those computer banks. You know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. I, I got you. Basically, the phone calls and text messages, is that what you're referring to? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, I kind of thought you did. Uh, okay, ladies and gentlemen, guess what? President Barack Obama lied to you yet again. When Edward Snowden came out and he dropped the bomb as to uh, some of my friends, and I'm not going to say who, but I can tell you it wasn't me. I promise it wasn't me. But when some of my friends at the NSA were listening to your phone calls and ripping your text messages off your phone without even putting their hands on it, he said that all of this was going to be destroyed. It wasn't. None of it was destroyed. It was all put in this computer bank to be disposed of at a later time. Newsflash. It's not going to be disposed. Here's a little secret. If you want to go into a computer's memory and wipe it completely clean without using some kind of program, get ready for this. You get a really strong magnet, a really strong one, and put it up against the hard drive. It wipes it clean. Completely destroys the hard drive. It's, they, they sell magnets that you can even plug in. It's an electric magnet. Plug it in put it up against the hard drive, it's wiped clean. Um, it wouldn't take a lot of effort to do that, honestly. So if they haven't gotten rid, rid, of, rid of them by now, they're not going to. You were lied to yet again. Hmm, government lying to the people. What a novel idea, right? 
<laughs> Say it isn't so. Sorry to bust your bubble. <laughs> told you I was oh, a jerk. Man. I, told, I told you I was a jerk. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I also pulled this one up. Um, Twitter says that they really don't arbitrarily uh, uh, censor material, and the Twitter CEO lied to Congress. Believe it or not, <laughs> American Thinker had it. Yeah, our friend Griffin uh Daniel Sabosky, uh, had an article up on uh, American Thinker saying that uh, Dorsey actually lied under oath. Uh about shadow banning and about censoring. So, you know, gee, you sometimes wonder when you're speaking to someone, if their lips are moving, are they telling the truth or lying? So, you know, and Twitter has a lot at stake. How many people use Twitter? It is such a a, 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 a monopoly and a social media area. Between Twitter and Facebook. Okay, I've never had a Facebook page. I have no desire for Facebook. In fact, honestly, I mean, there were people that used to that were part of my support element. While I was out doing what I had to do, these people were either behind the wire or back at the agency getting the information, the data, and everything else that I needed, and I was sending them information also. But before I – anytime somebody new came out to my team – I would simply tell them, if you have a face and I find out that you put information on there that involves me, I will punch you in the throat. I will hurt you. <laughs> I don't care if you're male or female. You are not putting my life on the line. And not only that, you're not going to put your security. Because Facebook, I saw, I saw the writing on the wall. When I started seeing all this advertisement, but yet seeing that Facebook was for free, you know, when you have all this advertisement and yet, you know, these advertisers are paying a lot of money. So, of course, they're going to want more out of the corporation or the company, such as Facebook. So I saw the writing on the wall that was coming down the line, and I refused to have a Facebook account. And I made sure that my people did not put any information on there that was too personal because I wanted to protect them. Yes, I threatened to punch them in the throat, but my heart was in the right place because, like I said, I'm a jerk. And I... <laughs> I refuse to have a Facebook account. Twitter, on the other hand, I have my ways around Twitter. I know how to play with Twitter. And Twitter doesn't like it. And I don't care. But I have my ways of playing with Twitter and making sure that I'm safe when it comes to my information. And, of course, the simplest one is, hey, don't put anything personal in there, which I don't. But there are other ways of working around Twitter if they try to track you, if they try to find you. Twitter can never track me. I wish them the very best of luck. Because if they do try to track me, one day I'll be in Vienna, the next day I'll be in Denmark, the next day I'll be in South Africa. They won't know where I am. And I do that on purpose because I need to protect me. I need to protect who you know myself. So Twitter is easier to, to deal with as opposed to Facebook Oh no 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 no! They they just they don't care. They just make it impossible for you to have any kind of privacy, no matter what they say. Again, it's a lie. 
Yeah, it's funny because I do have a presence up on Facebook and Twitter and several other social networks, but I will not allow them to know my location. Every time it says, you know, we need to access your location, deny, 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 I block it. I don't put anything personal up on there. I, I put as little as possible. I'll blast out about shows or I'll repost an article, mm-hmm. but you won't see see anything like that. You know, ha- verify your account. Give us your cell phone number. Oh, hell no. <laughs> That's a double oh hell no. The way I use Twitter, they never ask me to verify my phone number because the way I use it, they don't seem to realize I'm on a phone. They don't know that I'm on a phone. So they never ask me to verify my number. So I'm pretty good with that. But I mean yeah. it's, it's you you've got to be tech savvy. Yeah, yeah, to to a degree, yeah, you have to be tech savvy. But, you know, I I look back at this stuff and I'm like, I've never needed Facebook. I got LinkedIn because I maintain contact with individuals that are also within the intelligence community or were in the intelligence community. Or I just want to keep up to date as to how General Flynn is doing, where is he going, you know, because he and I were contacts with each other on LinkedIn and on Twitter. But other than that, I mean, I have no desire for any other social media, Twitter and LinkedIn. And to me, Facebook, the need, the sense that you need social media in your life in order to exist is like, really? Whatever happened to just calling your friends up and saying, hey, how you doing? What's wrong with that? (laughs) That's more social than typing. Yeah, what brings out an important point, you know, beyond Facebook and Twitter, what about now the new uh, financial and medical records electronically being transmitted? You know, there is so much stuff on you out there in the World Wide Web. Um, There was, uh, what the heck was it? Uh, One of the medical networks was recently hacked because I have uh, LifeLock, and uh, they sent me a message that, a major medical uh, uh, clearinghouse had their records all hacked. And what was the other one? Oh, yeah, Marriott. Marriott Hotels. So if you stayed at a Marriott Hotel any time within the last 10 years, everything from your Social Security number to to your driver's license, it's probably in someone else's hands at this point. There's so much out there. Well, the one that really disturbs me the most is the fact that medical records are being sold, and I mean literally sold, to, you know, pharmaceutical corporations and so on and so forth. And they're like, hey, we found out that you have an enlarged prostate. Guess what we got for you? And my question is, how did you know this person has an enlarged prostate? Personal records. But yet they managed to find out. And it's because, you know, information is sold on patients. I mean, like I said, I mean, if all of a sudden you get, you know, you, you, you get a coupon for hemorrhoid cream, don't be shocked if you, and ask yourself, how did they know <laughs> your information got sold? So don't be surprised. You know, it's funny. It's very true. And it doesn't mean a corporation's doing it. Sometimes individuals do it for profit also. Because my husband two years ago spent about a month and a half in the hospital. I almost lost him three times during that one stay. And I had come home after visiting him in the hospital, and now I'm getting a phone call for a guy soliciting specific medication he was on. 
And that medication was only issued to him just two days before at the hospital. And here I've got a medical yeah. company naming the medications he was on. I flipped out. I got a hold of the, the head of patient services over there, and I read them the riot act. And I said, who sold his medical record? I said, it could only have come from you guys. And that, that no, really yeah, I mean, me up. Honestly, I mean, it doesn't surprise me. It really does not surprise me. I mean, if here we have a government that's willing to turn around and sell, or excuse me, previous administration and certain members of the current government, if they're willing to sell Russia our uranium so they can make themselves rich and provide more power, nuclear power, to one of the greatest adversaries this country has ever had, what do they care about your, your health information? You think they're going to protect it? I mean, yeah, many of them do feel that it's, it's something that needs to be done. But then you've got the ones that want to keep, you know, getting richer and richer and richer. And, you know, to them, being worth $50 million just isn't enough. So, of course, the lobbyists come along and convince these individuals. Prime example, I'm watching a commercial on television against President Trump. And it says that lobbyists have spent $35.3, no, um, something like $3 billion, $3 billion in Washington, D.C., that the lobbyists are doing this. But they failed to actually say, yeah, and most of that money went to Democratic representatives, members of the Democrat Party, because they're trying to lobby against the president, such as the pharmaceutical companies. The president is demanding lower prices on pharmaceuticals for everybody, especially the elderly. And the pharmaceutical companies don't want this. So who do you think is getting the money? Uh, Oh, yeah, the Democrats. The same people that are saying, we want Medicaid for everybody. We want your help. But yet you're getting money from these lobbyists to go up against the president, who is actually trying to push for legislation for better health care in this country. Please make up my mind. Yeah, it's, it's a multi-billion dollar business and lobbyists. And if we could ever find a way to clear out lobbyists, no longer have them, and still have our representative republic, um, that, that would be a miracle. But unfortunately, it's an evil in our society, an evil in our government, these lobbyists. What was good intentioned for uh, underrepresented groups has blown way out of proportion. And it's, it's rife with greed. It's rife with, with bribery, crime, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's, and what's the there answer is, to it? There is no answer at this point. I came to the realization a long time ago, good intention will always be overpowered and replaced by self-interest. Absolutely, absolutely. And again, Warp makes another uh, good observation about these kiosks that read your biometrics and it's not actually warp these very things are already out there in our malls uh where you walk past a certain sign and it changes to fit you the advertisement then morphs into whatever it feels would be suitable to you which is really scary that a kiosk or some signboard just you walking past it could then tailor an advertisement to you. 
That's very scary. I, you know, I, I have no neighbors. I live away from people. I am cautious with my computers. I mean, I'm not like what you might call bananas paranoid about it, where it seems that I need to straitjacket, you know, and running around screaming conspiracy theories because I don't like conspiracy theories. But, I mean, to me, it's a simple case that the less people know about me, the happier I am. So do I go shopping exactly. online? No. No. I go buy stuff. I get in my car, drive, and I go buy what I want. If I see a rare book, I will go to another book dealer. That book dealer will contact that other book dealer, and I'll get the rare book that I want. Because um, I, I love books. I'm a, I'm a book junkie. Um, if I want it, I pay for cash. Do I have credit cards? Yes. Do I use it? No, not so much. I prefer cash. Uh, And I'll only use the credit card when I desperately really, really need to. But other than that, the less people know about me, the happier I am. And the way, you know, computers have brought a lot of simplicity to our lives. They've made our lives easier, but they've also made them so much more difficult because we did not have this problem 50 years ago about somebody hacking into our system and finding everything out about us. Computers have allowed that to happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. And looking at the clock, we're down to our last six minutes. Um, when you do talk to Rod, tell him I send my regards. I haven't spoken to him in a while. I've been thinking about him and uh, glad that you're doing a show with him, uh, with his Zinc uh, network. Um, and when do you expect to launch this program? It's probably going to be after the new year because, let's face it, people are going to be running around. I mean, right now there are those that are celebrating Hanukkah. Then there are those that are celebrating, you know, getting ready for Christmas. And then New Year's Eve, nobody's going to be listening to anything because people are going to be too busy, you know, having a great time for New Year's Eve. So it's probably going to be after the new year. And I am... I. I I'm not excited about it yet. I won't be excited until we put the first one or two shows in the can and put them out there. That's when I'll really start getting excited about it because I always walk with caution because God knows what could happen to me. We could say, yeah, first show is going to be January 2nd, and on January 1st, it's the end of the world. And everything, (laughs) you know, the entire planet just blows up. Guess it's not happening January 2nd. So I'm just going to... Um, I'm cautiously looking forward to this, and I, I, I'm really hoping this happens and it happens well. And like I said, ladies and gentlemen, um, it's going to be on once a week. Listen to it at your convenience. And he, Rod's even setting up a website so you can go there, listen to it, and just be able to listen to it at your convenience and probably even subscribe to our podcast. And... The more people we get in, the more people, you know, probably, it depends on the listeners. If we get enough demand, it'll probably go from one hour to maybe an hour and a half. I don't want to take up mm-hmm. people's time that much. Well, I'm going to wish you good luck on it. And we'll be talking. you got my phone number and email, so feel free to give a shout. Uh, but that is all we've got for today. Uh, so I want to thank you, CS, for joining us. 
And it, it was, was a pleasure to speak <laughs> with you again. CS, my brother, it was awesome yeah. speaking to you again. All right. Yeah, just and don't let the world brother end from on the first. Mother. Yeah, don't let the world end on the first. That's my birthday. <laughs> oh, no, I'm sorry. oh man! Oops, my bad. Well, Merry no, Christmas. See, my brother, because we're Merry both CS and we both have that deep voice. So, Merry Christmas yeah. and Happy New Year to the both of you. All right. Oh, God bless. All right. She has Walker. Uh, check out his website, uh, thevarindossier.com. <laughs> uh, Curtis, uh, we'll be back here uh, on Friday, our final show before Friday. the Christmas holidays. We're going to take that little bit of a vacation. Uh, both you and I have yeah. things we have to take care of. So we'll be back Radical. after the start of the year. But our final show Friday, Blockbuster, guys, this is Corey Lewandowski and Milo Yiannopoulos. So we're ending with the Big Bang. So I hope everyone can join us. Spread the word out there that we'll have these two guests on on Friday. Uh, and we'll see you all then. So until then, uh, I guess that would be a good night and God bless. And I'll leave you with our closing song, uh, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. So, Curtis, I'll be speaking right. with you later on, honey. All, all right. right. Until then, good night and God bless.